welcome to Parallax Lectures. I'm Tom Mark. I'm your host. Um, this is the third episode of this fairly new format, so I'm very happy that you all joined in. Um, we have a slate of upcoming guests. This month even will appear Hansi Freinacht and Raoul Eschelmann and a couple of more. So I hope you will all tune in. Um, tonight is a special night because uh, Lena Russell Anderson and Thomas Bjorkman are with me. Uh, Lena is Danish. She has uh, studied economy and theology. I hope I get that right and worked as an independent futurist and philosopher and publisher. Thomas Björkman is Swedish, studied physics and macroeconomics, uh, and is an entrepreneur, uh, amongst other things. And they both wrote a splendid book, namely The Nordic Secret, which is now out in Germany called The uh, Scandinavische Geheimnis. And I'm very happy that they're here and that they took the time. And I very welcome Lena Andersen and Thomas Björkman. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank how, you. How are Happy you guys doing? Very good. Thank you. Um, fall, is, uh, fall is setting in here in Copenhagen and it's uh, getting colder. I still have a window open, so I hope we don't have a lot of no noise from the outside. Right. How, how warm is it now? About 10 degrees, 9, right. 8. It's getting darker, so probably 7. Okay. But it's okay. Yeah. No, we, we in Scandinavia, we have the... Um, uh, advantage of having so much sunlight during uh, during the spring that once you pass the autumn equinox which we did a couple of weeks ago then uh, it becomes fairly fairly dark so right the dark season right from where are you calling in now i'm calling in from stockholm at oh, the right moment. okay so, uh, so i spend uh, i divide my time between london and stockholm but during the covid uh, times here, I uh, have chosen to spend a lot of time in Stockholm. Right, right. I, I would have made the same choice. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, without going too much into detail, are you happy with the COVID course your governments took, respectively, uh, I'm, in retrospect? I, uh, I'm, I'm super happy. So I, I, I think, uh, uh, and we might come back to this because I think this relates a little bit to the Nordic secret and what we are going to talk about right. uh, tonight. But I don't think that any government could have taken the strategy that the Swedish government took. But, but g given the state of the, of the population, uh, I think it was the right decision. Right. right. I, I would say on the, uh, on the actual political practical decisions and handling the crisis in Denmark, I think the government did the right things, but the legislation behind it and the lack of understanding of the basic principles of an open society, uh, I'm, I'm really terrified at the political decisions and the legislation that has come out of this. So, uh, so I'm like 50-50 right. um, satisfied and very much against it. Okay. So, okay, now, um, what we will do now is talk a little bit about the Nordic secret you know, and I hope you will both enlighten us. It will work that way that you both have more or less 10 minutes to, you know, elaborate your perspective. And then I will kind of join in and we have a short conversation about maybe in total 40, 45 minutes. And then we will open the floor for the participants to join in and to have a conversation show. So, um, Lena, would you 
Yeah. Actually, I, I would yeah. hand over the word to Thomas because uh, we we cheated and, and uh, organized this in advance. So, uh, Thomas, please go ahead. All right. So, Thomas, go ahead, please. So, so Len and I agreed that um, uh, I would I would do start by doing a little bit of of uh, a framing, and then Lena would speak uh, more about the book and uh, about the uh, uh, yeah the, the the different parts of the book. Um, and when I do that, I would like to share my screen because I have some uh, slides I would want to use. I got 10 slides and I hope that I will keep uh, the 10 minutes. Uh, but before doing that, I want to take the opportunity also to uh, uh, really give uh, credit to you, uh, Lena. Uh, I'm always careful to say that when it comes to this book, uh, you actually worked uh, more or less two years full time in researching and drafting and and uh, writing this. So even though this was very much uh, a joint effort, you were the one that were doing the, that were doing the lion's share of of the work, and that's much appreciated. Thank, Thank you. you. And I, I could not have done it without you. And we're not just going to sit here and, and you know praise each other. But it, it was a it was a very good uh, uh, collaboration. So yeah. yep. Thank you. So I'm I will share my screen now. So let's see if I can, uh, Tom, if you could allow me to share my screen, please. Thank you. Now it's, uh, now it's working. So uh, yes, so first of all, uh, uh, I should say that uh, Lena and I are, are just so happy that uh, uh, our book, The Nordic Secret, is now also out in German translation, uh, and it is uh, uh, available all, more or less from this uh, week, both at uh, the online bookstores and uh, at the bookshops in, in Germany. So th that's a big step for us. Um, uh, I would like to, to start by just reminding us all about the technological uh, development, the exponential technological development that is driving rapid societal change. And some uh, speakers and thinkers are talking about that we are entering into a VUCA world of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And I'm sure you are all familiar with this. And Th this technological development has, of course, given us everything that is uh, appreciated in the modern society, like modern medicine and internet, and the fact that we can meet like this uh, on an evening across countries and even continents. But then, of course, we have the backside of this rapid technological development uh, that are showing up in many, many different forms in society today. And all these different crises uh, that we see at the moment, from the political crisis, the economic injustice crisis, the crisis in, in democracy and in, in psychological health, I think that they are all just symptoms of an underlying, what I sometimes call a meta-crisis of our time. And of course one could describe this meta-crisis in, in many different ways, but one way of doing it that is relevant to 
to the Nordic secret is to say that the core challenge to individuals, organizations, and society today uh, is really that the increase in complexity in our outer world has to be matched by an increase in complexity in our inner worlds. And, and that is really a core insight. And that is a core insight that is valid today, but is also a core insight that many leading politicians and intellectuals had in the Nordic countries 150 years ago, when we were also at that time facing a period of rapid outer change and complexification of society and life. Another one way to describe this is by looking at the world value studies, studies that I'm also sure that most of our viewers tonight are, are familiar with. And to note the very extreme position of uh, the Nordic countries. And to say, and we elaborate this in the book, that th this position in the world value study is really to become very well adopted for the modern society. So the Nordic secret is very much the story about how the Nordic countries managed to end up in that space so rapidly and so quickly, moving from the lower left corner up to the upper right corner. And um, the Nordic countries did that during a period that we might call a paradigm shift. It was a shift from a pre-modern society into a modern society. And the, the pre-modern pre society sort of went through a rapid technological development with the printing press and the industrial revolution and all of that. And that ended up in a turmoil that made this transition from pre-modern into modern society uh, quite a bloody and turbulent affair in, in many European countries. But again, the Nordic countries managed this trans transaction in a very smooth and, and successful way. And of course, that had many uh, reasons. But one reason, uh, and the reason that is also very relevant today, was a focus on what some thinkers, Otto Scharmer amongst others, call vertical development. And that is really putting a focus on that in times of rapid transition like this, we, we need to increase our inner capabilities to hold this complexity. And of course, that involves learning new things. It involves understanding techno technology and being able to use technology for, for the common good. So certainly, this uh, increase in inner capacities that are necessary during those times contain a large portion of what some people call the horizontal development, learning new things, things that you can learn in school. But you also have this vertical development that is always important, but in times of rapid transition becomes even more important. And that is not so much learning new things as really expanding your capacity to hold change and hold complexity. And any development throughout life is a combination of horizontal and vertical development. But quite often, and today I would say in the schooling system 
today, we, we are very much neglecting this vertical developmental aspect. So what happened during this period in the Scandinavian countries and that uh, Lena will talk more about is that we implemented a program uh, to really support the increase in these capacities to hold and embrace and participate actively in change and in the development of the new society. And that uh, method of facilitating these inner developments and development of these capacities was uh, done under the name of Bildung and Volksbildung, which really means Bildung for the general population. And I believe that this is very relevant today again, because I believe that we are now again in a similar paradigm shift, where we are moving from the old paradigm, which is now modernity and its postmodern critique, that perhaps had its height in Scandinavia during the 60s, 70s and 80s. And now through this rapid technological development with the internet, but also other technological development, of course, creates this period of turmoil when we are in this transition between worlds and that we are now moving into something new that Lena and I in, in our book uh, give the name a meta-modern world, but you might call it something else, but we certainly believe that something quite new is, is needed to be born. And then the question comes, what can we learn from how well the Scandinavian countries managed to negotiate the previous deep societal shift when we are now facing a, a similar today? My last slide would go back again to this uh, uh, chart of the World Value Study and just express it in a slightly different way, saying that before the modern world, all societies were located in this part of the diagram. And the Nordic secret tells the story about how the Nordic countries broke out of that space opened up a larger space, the larger space of modernity, and how this transition was facilitated. And that we now believe that we are at the edge of opening up yet an even larger space like this into uh, a new paradigm, a new uh, uh, societal order. And the question is, what, what can we learn from the previous transition in this new transition that is opening up. So th that was my 10 minute big framing of um, why I wanted to, to write this book together with Lene and why I think this story is important also to uh, our times right now. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Thomas. Would you make me the host again, please, again? Yes. Yeah, a lot of stuff there. Um, yes, lots of stuff in 10 minutes. I No, uh, I can't transfer the host. Are you, are you still the host? No, you're still, you're the host now and you have to make the host again. Yeah, and I'm, I'm where I usually can do that, but I only have access to 
to rename and uh, no, let me see here. Right. No, sorry. Lino, can, uh, I, can, I, can you do me, uh, make me host again? No, I, I make you a host now. Sorry, I, uh, oh, perfect. I, I found it. Do we have perfect. a host? Yes, now I'm the host yes. again. Thank I can you. I can tell okay. from my screen. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> so Lena, thank you, Thomas, again for that short presentation. Lena, it's your floor now. Ten minutes. Thank uh, you. you that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm gonna do like 250 years in um, in ten minutes, and I'm gonna start around 1700, when Europe was very very different, and it was a feudal society, it was an agricultural society, and religion played a huge role. And part of this religion was a, a brand new thing called Pietism, which was an inner emotional connection to Christ that was new in the way that earlier religion had just been sort of the, the traffic rules of society, but with this new Pietism, and that's also where we have Bach's music, um, the personal emotions and the personal uh, spiritual connection to Christ was a new thing. So there was a new focus on on the on the inner world of of the individual, and from this grew a new uh, uh, kind of philosophy. And Shaftesbury in England was one of the first people to uh, to pursue this and talked about. Uh, what is beauty and he talked about the the most beautiful people the beautiful people are the ones that others copy but the most beautiful people are the ones that um you know the the first the beautiful people are the ones that copy the right things and the most beautiful people are the ones that others copy so the most moral people and uh hume started writing about also what is what is our mind doing and um and then one of the 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 people who, who read this and who completely transformed the thinking in, in Europe was Rousseau. And he wrote the book Emile, which came out in uh, 1762. And here he describes the emotional and moral development of the boy Emile from he's born and until he's around 20 or 24. And that was like a Copernican turn in the European understanding of individual development and that children are not just, you know, un incomplete adults, but they actually have a, um, an evolving character and there's something going on inside them. So, so this was the brand new kind of thinking that Europe created until the, the mid 1700s. And in, in all of this period, the word Bildung uh, was referring to a Christian Bildung. The build, the image in Bildung was referring to shaping your character in the image of Christ. But here during the enlightenment and the mid 1700s, it then became a secular term. And, um, and when Thomas and I first started talking about this, um, the, the concept of building that uh, particular Thomas was thinking of, but I, I also uh, kind of had that in my, in my cultural luggage, was that building was this either bourgeois sort of uh, societal norms and knowing how to hold a knife and a fork and read, uh, eat with the right tools at the right time at the dinner party or reading Proust or uh, listening to Mozart or a very sort of um, petit bourgeois uh, middle-class norms that were dictating how to live your life. And so a very confining sort of set of moral norms that would inhibit your freedom. But really, uh, this whole thinking about building in the 1700s was about expanding the mind and expanding the individual development and freedom. And that was a concept of building that we were not aware of and that we dug out through um, 
through through these uh, particularly the the German sources of the late 1700s. So that was our journey into the, the, the German concept of Bildung. Uh, we have the words in the Scandinavian countries, and so it's very much part of our, our culture, but we were not aware of the deep German roots, but that was what we, what we dug out. Um, and one of the first people to write about Bildung as an individual personal development was uh, the philosoph, um, uh, philosopher Herder, uh, and he uh, published a book in 1774 called uh, Auch eine Geschichte über die Bildung der Menschheit or something like that. My German is not the best, but I think I got pretty close there. The same year uh, was when Goethe published um, The Sufferings of the Young Werder, and maybe uh, Tom can pronounce the title in, in German and do it right. Um, okay, so uh, we'll just uh, leave that up to the German audience and uh, remember what the, the German t title of that was. But both these das books. Das Leiden des Junges Wertes. See, it's wonderful. I love Europe. So, um, so this this story about a young man in the feudal society, and he's off the bourgeoisie, and he wants so much out of life, and he can go nowhere with it because there are, there are no career opportunities, and is you know it's he can't move uh, around in his life or do anything. And then of course he's um, in love with a girl, and she's already married, and he cannot have her, and then he makes. In, in pursuit of a job, he makes one social faux pas, and he's like out of the you know uh, high society for good. And so um, I hope I don't re reveal too much by um, telling that he ends up killing himself. The young man, not Gerda, but the young man in the Vader in the book. Um, but this story was representing the frustrations of the young men, uh, also some of the women, but particularly the young men in the uh, 1770s in this feudal society. And it spread like a wildfire across Europe, this, uh, this book, and it was banned in many European countries. So he was like the first, um, it was the first youth revolt in, in European uh, history. And that was really about Bildung. So, so Bildung is a, is a revolutionary force that can change societies. And after Goethe, there was like uh, Schiller and Fichte and eventually, he um, what's his name, Hegel and von Humboldt. And they were all gathered uh, from around 1776, 8-ish, 79 in Weimar and Jena. And it was a hothouse of German thinking. And from there, it traveled to uh, the Nordic countries, particularly in Copenhagen, where anybody who was anything uh, was reading German as well as they were reading Danish, and they were reading all these German philosophers. Um, the big change between the Bildung among the German thinkers and what happened in Denmark was that the, the Bildung thinkers in Germany was, were really just focusing on the bourgeoisie and their own political freedom, their own development, and their own um, opportunities in society. It was very much a, a bourgeoisie thing. So there is this bourgeois connection to, um, to Bildung. But in Denmark, there was a pastor and his, his name was Grundvig. And, um, and he realized um, in the 1830s that it was really all of society that needed Bildung and particularly the peasants because they needed to understand that they were Danes and they were becoming citizens um, and that they had responsibilities towards their country and they needed a Danish sense of self, a Danish identity in order to not revolt or, or do stupid things in these many new changes that were happening. So there are a lot of people who could see that things were changing. There were also 
revolutions across Europe, uh, 1789 in France and 1830 across Europe and also 1848. Uh, Denmark then got a constitution in 1849. It's a very peaceful process. We were just about to have a, a civil war in the duchies between Denmark and Germany, uh, but it, uh, well, it did become a war, but it did not become a, a civil war. Um, but the main point is that in Denmark, this Bildung became folk building. It became a popular movement. And the, the person who turned it into a popular movement was a teacher by the name of Kristen Cold. And he invented the first folk high school that was an actual success and that was affordable for young farmhands and later also for young farm girls. And he opened that in 1851. And what he did, that was the real the, the trick, the, the, the magic bullet, was that he had a, a five-month program. It was a boarding school. And he had realized that when he was teaching, he was teaching kids first for, for a number of years. And when he did that, the kids did not pay attention. When he taught them when he was supposed to teach them, they did not pay attention. But if he told them stories, they would listen. And so when he started his first folk high schools for these young farmhands who were aged 18 to 25, he started by reading heroic novels to them. So there was this Danish uh, author who was writing um, medieval style um, or stories from, from medieval times with these heroic Danish men. And, and so these uh, young farmhands could identify with that and they got all fired up and were like, yeah, I'm going to be a proud Danish man. And, and so they had a, the, their spirit was awakened. And once he had them all fired up and interested in what does it mean to be Danish? What is my country? Then he let them ask questions. Instead of teaching them what he thought they should know, he just let them ask questions. And for 1851, that was really, really radical. And so they got to know what they wanted to know. And then gradually he taught them new agricultural techniques and he taught them science and he taught them all kinds of stuff. And this became a movement. And when we get to around 1900, uh, these schools had spread to Norway and Sweden and also to Finland and across Denmark there were around 100 schools and about 8 to 9 percent of the annual cohort went to one of these folk high schools and so this spread like a, a movement across um, Scandinavia and that has transformed the countries. Uh, 1850 all the Nordic countries were among the poorest in Europe and around 1900 we were among the richest except Finland, was, which was under Russian rule and remained poor until they got their freedom. And then it took them 30 years to um, be as rich as the Swiss. And when you are as rich as the Swiss, you reach goal. So that was the, uh, that was the Nordic secret in, uh, I think, 10 minutes. Perfect. Thank you, Lena, for that presentation. That was very enlightening. So what we do now, what, what uh, interests me first and foremost is uh, how did you both get connected with each other? And, you know, because this idea of the relationship between building and development, this is a fairly new idea and something that we should learn in school, but don't somehow. So this is a, a thought I want to elaborate um, or to, to investigate. So, so Lena, what can you say something to that? How, how did you meet and how did you get in you know, this feeling, this idea that, you know, there are two points converging to each other. 
Um, I mean, first of all, the, the building, the original building idea is the, the, the new idea, that, that it is the vertical development and the horizontal development. And we lost the vertical aspect of this. Uh, von Humboldt wrote about that. Schiller wrote about this. They just, they just described it differently. But this emotional and moral development is what building was about for them. Uh, but Thomas and I met in, uh, in Stockholm. Thomas is um, part one of the owners of a, of a publishing uh, company and uh, we were meeting at a, a roundtable uh, kind of event. And during the discussions, we just realized that uh, we, we were on the same wavelength. Uh, the others were talking about some very interesting stuff, but we, we, had, more, we had more issues we had to uh, sort out. And then I think like five or six months later, uh, for some other reason, I was in London where Thomas uh, spent most of his time before Corona. <laughs> um, and uh, I went to visit Thomas in the afternoon, I think around four o'clock, and we were planning to go out for dinner at six o'clock, and we did. We went back to Thomas' apartment and we kept talking, and we talked about all the stuff that Thomas showed on his slides, and we talked about the ego development and the building, and we got into our first fight about ego development versus building. And then around four o'clock in the morning, we were still sitting in, in uh, Thomas' uh, living room on the couch and discussing all of these things. And I was like, I may want to go back to my hotel and pick up my stuff before I need, before I need to go to the airport. So that was, the, uh, that was April 2012. Um, and I think Thomas should add what he, uh, what he would like to add to that story. Yeah, yeah. So... Um... Mm. Uh, I, I don't. I, I think we were talking about most of the things in 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 my slides, but I don't think we we started talk about building uh, that that early. We. Um, for, for I mean, me, I, I know that I mentioned it, okay. and I know that you, that you talked about ego development. Yeah, it was one so, of the things yeah, that we so, were sort of yeah, boxing so, so, and trying to figure out what yeah, so, so what I, we meant I, by building. Yeah. So I, so I was just going to. To, to come to that, that then at least a few years uh, later, and I should say that my foundation in Stockholm, the Oak Island Foundation, uh, when, when I founded that 10 years ago, it was really to focus on uh, the connection between inner personal development and societal change. And in my discussions with Lena, I started to realize that uh, I might be sort of trying to reinvent the wheel that, that uh, this focus on and the connection between inner development and societal change that that was actually in our Scandinavian DNA, even if I was very much uh, uh, unaware of it. And then we had this a bit of a conflict coming from two different directions where Lena was talking very much about the value of building. And I said, now that's just old bourgeoisie's thinking, could be nothing there. And I told Lena about... Uh, uh, the, the modern uh, ego developmental theories, and I uh, tried to get Lena to read, uh, for example, Robert Key, Professor Robert Keegan at Harvard University's his ideas about ego development. And Lena thought that, well, ego development—that's uh, that's just the New Age uh, stuff. Can't can't be any value in in that. And then when we each dug into deeper, I, le I read more about building and Lena read more about uh, modern psychological theories of ego development. We, we started to realize that uh, this is really the same thing. Uh, and that the academic disciplines, because there, there is a, a discipline within academia in Europe that is focusing on building. But, but we couldn't find any real references there 
in, in that contemporary academic discipline to um, uh, contemporary ego development uh, science. And also the other way around, reading in the psychological departments, there didn't seem to be anyone that made the connection to, to the building part. And, right. and, no, and nobody um, was making the connection to Schiller and Herder and Goethe and Fichte and those, I mean, the, what happened 250 years ago. Right. Um, and, and, and to our surprise, contemporary, and that is something that we elaborate in the book, to our, to our surprise, we found that the, the actual models of vertical development, of ego development, that Schiller and Goethe and von Humboldt was using and developing explicitly and tying them to the development of democracy, that those models of ego development corresponds almost exactly to contemporary ego development, psychological, empirical research and modeling. Okay, so could you, could you please, for the listeners who don't know about uh, development of ego sta uh, stages and, and all of that, could, could you elaborate how exactly and how, how we could see that, how we could observe them? Well, you know, uh, like how do they manifest each other? Yeah, I'll let uh, Lena uh, do the detailed... Uh, If I do uh, the building, you do the Keegan. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I was just going to do, do the both by just saying that in both these traditions, a very important step that we can take as young adults or as adults, but many people in society never do, is to go from a way of operating where you are dependent on an external authority for your own self-worth, for recognition and also for moral direction to become, to take the step to become inner directed, to connect with an inner compass and not being dependent on an outside authority. And this important step is identified so clearly both by the German and uh, idealist philosophers and also in contemporary uh, adult development of psychology. And then you can talk about other steps and we elaborate that a lot in the book, but that, that is one very important step. But what would you say, Lena? Yeah, I, I would say just to sum up Keegan, I mean, Keegan has five phases. And so he talks about the early childhood, late childhood, uh, teenage years where you're self-governing and then uh, adulthood where you can and should become self-authoring. And then there's sort of a, a grandparent phase where you become self-transforming. And so let's just call it phase one, two, three, four, and five. Um, and this late childhood phase two matches what Schiller calls the uh, emotional person and what Keegan calls the, the phase three, the self-governing phase is what Schiller calls the rational person, the person who follows the rationale of society. And then there's the self-authoring person, which is, is what Schiller calls the moral person. And they, I mean, what they say about how we operate in this world, and, and as, as Thomas said, the, what kind of moral compass do you have? The, uh, moral, the emotional person has no moral compass. The rational person has an outer moral compass and the uh, self-authoring moral person has an inner moral compass. And the way that they are described 250 years ago and what Keegan says today and other developmental psychologists is just so much overlapping and um, 
and when you read the way that Herder describes uh, the child's development and the way that you read uh, the Rousseau describes the child's development, that could have been a seven or 13 year old today. That, that's not fundamentally different. Um, so, so uh, I mean, they really knew, I mean, they knew us more than we know them in many respects because they, and, and they realized that this is crucial. Mm -hmm. And then I think one more, just continuing there on how we, the, the starting of us writing this book. So, so one insight that start, got us starting writing the book what was this insight that building and, and uh, modern psychological development that you go to retreats at SLN or other places today to go on this inner vertical development journey, that this was really describing the same thing. That was one thing. But then the other ins insight that really made something drop in, in, in me was that when uh, Lena and I found at the Royal Library in Stockholm this uh, uh, newspaper uh, article from 1889, uh, where w w one of the founding fathers of Sweden, of modern Sweden, or the founding father of modern Sweden, Jalmar Branting, who was the first social democratic prime minister in Sweden. And he was prime minister three times and he got the uh, Nobel Peace Prize together with a Norwegian guy for taking the initiative to form the League of Nations after the First World War. Um, I, I have always associated the social democratic movement and the building of the people's home in Sweden, as they called the project, as a, as a totally materialistic project. For me, this was the fight for uh, um, 40 days, uh, 40 hours work week, uh, fight to have a paid vacation, uh, fight to have decent housing. But then I find this, though, this frontal figure in this process, Jan Branting, writing when he was 29 years old, and he was writing from prison because he's, he was uh, imprisoned because of blasphemy, because he was arguing for a secular society. And back then in the authoritarian society of Sweden, back then, that was enough for you to, to get in prison. But still he writes something like this, and I'm paraphrasing now, that we social democrats have been too much focused on the material aspects of life. They are of course necessary, but they are only a prerequisite for what is really important and that is spiritual development. And he's actually using those words in Swedish, andlig utveckling, which in German would be geistlichesentwicklung, or spiritual um, right. development <clears throat> in, in, in English. Yes, he concludes, we have to take humanity to a new developmental level. And this was for me completely uh, unheard of. Right. That, that, sort of some sort of secular inner spiritual development was at the core of this project of building the modern Swedish society. And that got us really starting to investigate what was this about? Where did these ideas come from? And we soon realized that they came from the German idealist philosophers. And not, not only the Germans, you mentioned in your book one astonishing example from Ibsen, I guess, about Nora. Sure, you know, when, she, when she fights uh, with her husband about uh, her rights and uh, because she wants to leave to recount the story and the husband, Edward Torvald, 
Is his name? Torvald, yeah. Torvald, yes. And he says, well, you can't leave the household because of I'm your husband and you have your duties and you have a child. And, and she says, yes, I understand them, but I have also the rights against myself and the duties against myself. And I, I have to do my own work and my, my, my own stuff. And, and I have to find a way to equilibrize those two things. And, 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 and you clearly see the, the echoes centuries yeah. later in, in feminism, you know, and in what we now in developmental terms described as mo modernism and postmodernism and all these movements. And well, yeah, and, and I think the, 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 the most funny part was that the actual wife of Ibsen, because he initially wrote <laughs> a different ending where she came back to Torvald, she said, well, if you write that, I will leave you. Yeah, if, if Nora doesn't leave, I will leave. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And so that is like a very interesting example of how literature or an author like Ibsen, like catch the spirit of what we're now describing in developmental terms. You know, you have to be able to self-author and to create your life and to try to find to, you know, to overcome all the contradictions you have in yourself and to be the own author of your, of your own life, basically. Right. What, what I think is really crucial because, I mean, we, we live in a time where there's so much focus on the individual. Um, and, I, and I think it's really crucial to point out that you need to go through the whole process. You can't just, you know, be 12 years old and say, hey, I'm going to be self-authoring and then do whatever I want to do for the rest of my life. There's a crucial part in the middle, which is becoming a team player, um, the, the, uh, the rational person the self-governing person. And that is why we uh, send children to sports so that they learn to play by rules that others have made. That's why you can benefit from playing an instrument in an orchestra uh, or joining the scouts or a choir uh, or playing theater so that you learn to align your emotions with a, a bigger group and, and not just, you know, feeling your own feelings, but actually internalizing the expectations of others and the rules from, from society. And then you can step out of that and become self-authoring. Um, and I, I, uh, I mean, we all, we all want to be surrounded by team players. We also all want to be surrounded by, um, by self-authoring people, but we do not want to be surrounded by uh, self-consolidating uh, emotional people who can only see th things from their own, what benefits themselves. Um, be stage so, two and three, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you really want stage three in there before you uh, go to something you, you call stage four. So, okay. And, so. and also recognizing, just building on that, that uh, the self-authoring person uh, is not the end of the developmental journey. That, that you have the, at least this fifth stage that Lena was referring to as the grandparent stage which uh, very few people today in society reach, and usually at the age of being a grandparent. But you, you have exceptional cases, and more and more young people are actually able to, young than I mean under 40, are, are, are stepping into the, that mind. And I think that in this rapidly moving world where we almost are entering into a constant cultural transformation, we need a lot more of those people who can really also uh, take a perspective on this, both personal inner development, but also take an external perspective on cultural development and cultural shift. And again, according to the developmental psychologist, th that is really when you need this sort of fifth way of making meaning and seeing the world. Seeing the world. Right. So <clears throat> you, you mentioned the big word metamodernism as, as a 
possible way to, to deal with these kinds of complexities and I don't want to let, let, let it go past. So what, what, what is that? Um, how can we understand metamodernism in terms of modernity and, and postmodernity? So I would say uh, there, there are two definitions of metamodernity and metamodernism, sort of major um, terms out there. And metamodernism is, it started as uh, a cultural theory of this uh, sort of uh, double feeling of, uh, yeah, I, I live in the postmodern world and have an ironical distance to everything and I can't really connect with anything genuine, genuinely. On the other hand, I do need the modern world and the science and there are things that are important. You can't just, you know, shrug your shoulders at everything. So there's this sort of ambivalence between the modern and the postmodern and that has been integrated into the, uh, the metamodernism. Uh, so, so when people talk about metamodernism, they are usually only referring to an integration of the modern and the postmodern. Some refer to a pre-modernity before that, uh, but that's just everything that went before the, the modern time. I talk about metamodernity, and by that I mean four cultural codes. So there is uh, the postmodern uh, deconstruction, ironical distance, uh, perspective taking that we have learned over the past 10, 20, 50 years. There's the modern cultural code of uh, equality, science, uh, human rights, equal equality, um, and um, focus on facts. And then there's a, a pre-modern world where what we know today as religion and patriarchy and the big aesthetic and existential spiritual traditions develop. Uh, some of them are still around and we know them as Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, Judaism, these big religions. There are others, minor ones as well. Um, and these developed during the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. And then before that, there is a, a prehistoric indigenous uh, culture. And, and each of these cultural codes, the prehistoric indigenous, the pre-modern, the modern and the postmodern also refer to uh, group sizes. So um, they, I mean, these are the cultural codes that developed as societies grew in size. And when I talk about metamodernity, I talk about integrating the best from all four of them into a possible future. And uh, it is very much, I, I consider it very much a, uh, maybe like a, a map where, or, or a drawing or a model that is worth aiming for. It's, it, we can create it if we want to. Um, and, and by taking the best from all four cultural codes, I mean, for instance, that from the prehistoric uh, indigenous culture, intimacy in small group sizes. I mean, now we're three people on the screen. We can read each other's body language if we bring in the rest of the people in a moment. There are 17 people, I see that now. Uh, we can more or less, because the screens are too small, but otherwise, had we been physically together, we could have you know, read each other's body language and had eye contact within a very short time. So we can regulate the social interaction by doing that. Um, we cannot do that if we're 300 people uh, or 1,000 people. And that's where the prehistoric, the, the pre-modern religious a uh, uh, way of, of keeping societies calm uh, are developed. So with a thousand people or more, 10,000, 100,000, you need a shared narrative in order for people to share moral values, in order 
for there to be internal peace in a society. The problem is that they usually use all the other societies as the sort of enemies in order to say, we're the good people, we have the right moral norms, they are the bad people, They have the, we can kill them and we can steal their whatever it is. Um, and then in the modern world, we have million strong societies, but we also have different means of communication and that's why we can have democracy, that's why we can have public debates, that's why we can have public schools and libraries and theaters and all these institutions that allow us to carry a democracy. And then in the postmodern world, that is where we have people migrating from one culture to the other. And that's where we need to be able to see our own culture with, from the perspective of, from other, of, of others. Um, so the best things to, to take away and with us into the future is the ability to read body language in small settings, um, the aesthetic traditions and the rituals around the big transitions in life and also the existential philosophies that are uh, embedded in these religious traditions, but not in the political arena. In the political arena, we need the infrastructure of democracy. Um, and then in our social norms, in, uh, uh, in, in, in a postmodern society, in a multicultural society, we need to be able to uh, be woke, but not turn it into this sort of totalitarian ideology where uh, you cannot have any of the, the modern and the pre-modern and uh, prehistoric elements. On the other hand, <clears throat> if you took the, um, the, the political, so to speak, political infrastructure of the pre-modern society and applied it to a country of uh, three or 400 million people, you would call it corruption because that would just be the, the 20 people in one family ruling the country and reading their own, you know, each other's body language. And that would be the political infrastructure. That would not work. I mean, it does in some places. They just have to apply a lot of violence in order to keep the power. So um, we have to be aware of what group sizes are we dealing with and what kind of power structures are appropriate for that. And that is, that is to me, what metamodernity is about. And so we do not develop this so much in the Nordic secret, but we do mention it. and. Um, and because of, of the Nordic secret, I, I, uh, I wrote more about it afterwards. Yeah, right. you, you wrote a very, very accessible short book. I uh, just coincidentally happened to have it right here. See how thin it is? Very, yeah, it, very... It, it, is, it is accessible. I, I would just <laughs> add two, two things to, to what you just mentioned there, uh, Lena. And, and the first one is that uh, when you tell uh, the a story, it, it can seem so obvious. So I just want to say that... It, yeah, it can seem obvious, but it is not obvious because historically this has never happened. So the way that history played out was that in each of these transitions, the, the new, what you call cultural cult, the new society has always been completely rejecting the previous stage or stages. So when, when we went from a prehistorical indigenous culture into the the, the big religious society, the pre-modern society, then everything that was coming before became a hidden uh, and heresy. And you just refuse that. And the same through the, during the Enlightenment, when we went into the modernity, we completely rejected the religious perspective. And we also then, of course, re rejected the importance of narrative and the importance of myth. So we just rejected all of that and the indigenous. And then, of course, the postmodern reaction 
to, to modernity, which is a very, very philosophically sound reaction and with a lot of insights. But, but the main problem there is that you completely, again, reject, reject modernity and you completely reject the science. You do not just say that science do not, is a very specific language that can answer specific question. No, you end up saying that language is just, uh, um, sorry, that science is just a language game amongst many. It's just one narrative and you reject everything. So the new thing with the meta-modern perspective is that you do not reject what has come before and invent right. something new, but you actually integrate. And using a popular phrase, what you do is in each st stage is that you try to transcend, but include. Right. You transcend and you include. So, so that is one thing, that even though this seems obvious, this is not how history has played out at all. This is something completely new. And the other thing I wanted to say is that the other thing that is new today is that these shifts in cultural co codes or shifts in paradigms that we have gone through uh, historically so far, they have been many, but they have mostly been random. And most civilizations have crashed. But even when the Roman Empire crashed, that was a partial crash of the global system and parts and other parts could then thrive. Now we are at a transition where I believe that we cannot rely on trial and error. Right. Because if we fail now, it will be a global failure and a global collapse. It could even be an implosion that would mean the end of, of humanity. So now we need to do this in a conscious way. So another, as, another aspect of the metamodern perspective is that you become conscious about this, both historical evolution of society and our, our personal inner evolution and development through life and how these interact and what we can do today to facilitate the emergence of the, the next uh, civilization, so to say. Right, Thomas. A uh, uh, last question before we open up the, the field for questions. So given that these cultural stages of pre-modernity and modernity, post-modernity, maybe meta-modernity, like are emerging and somewhat correlate to these ego stages of development, which you just mentioned from, from Keegan. So if you, if you could give uh, some, some, you know, concrete examples how, you know, these kinds of uh, ways of dealing with the world can actually help to deal with the, you know, with the complexities and crisis that we are facing now. I let Lena elaborate on that. I, I just want to yeah. start saying that Professor Keegan has a term when it comes to organizations. He's talking about that we need to create deliberately developmental organizations that focus on both the individual and the organizational development. I would say that what we need to do today is to to develop a, a, a deliberately developmental society that deliberately looks at this developmental process. And I would say that we argue, Lena and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but, but you could say that the building societies that were formed 100 years in the Nordic countries were actually deliberately developmental societies, but then we forgot about that. Yeah, um, I mean, what, what is crucial to understand about the, the folk high schools that started 150 years ago, um, 170 years ago, actually, uh, is that they were, they were a bottom-up 
process uh, that was supported from the very top. So there was a very strong collaboration between the, the, the not necessarily the governments, but there were people with contacts to the governments and there were people, uh, I mean, academics and there were pastors and bishops and uh, the richer part of the bourgeoisie who were very supportive of creating these schools and they were so they were started on, on private initiative and very quickly they were supported by the governments but they were not financed by the government so it, it was a community uh, communities coming together and starting these schools with local teachers or pastors who were, were driving it and i was in a in a different meeting yesterday where we where we uh discussed so why why was it pastors why why do they play such a huge part in this and also in other parts of the world in india we talk about some um neighborhood parliaments and, and other structures where uh, local neighborhoods have, have started education and stuff. And, uh, and it, was a, it was a Catholic Catholic priest who started some of it. And I think the answer is that the, the teachers and the pastors were the people who were the well-educated, somewhat intellectual, but at least somewhat academic people in the countryside. And so they were the people who were dealing with the poorest peasants and the poorest workers and saw what their life was like. They were not isolated in the cities or in the towns uh, and just hanging out among other academics or uh, members of the bourgeoisie. They were actually, you know, seeing the poverty and also the spiritual poverty of, uh, of people in the countryside. And so they were motivated to start working for starting these folk high schools. Um, the development was a little bit different in, in Sweden. There were more academics than, than pastors involved in, uh, in Sweden. But still, there was this top and bottom connection in society. And I think that is what we need again. And we, um, what, what I think is crucial in the metamodern narrative and the way that we can handle many of the conflicts, inner conflicts that we have in our societies today, is that for the past 30 years, it has been... It, I mean, there's been a, a globalization agenda that has benefited a very small group, a very small percentage of, well, in some respects, it's, it's benefited all of us because we've had a lot of cheap stuff that we could afford to throw out. And that's just, that's harming nature uh, and us. Um, but globalization has sort of been the only right answer to everything and, and uh, nationalism has been looked down upon. And I don't think we should look down upon uh, nationalism. We should look down upon national chauvinism and any kind of chauvinism, which is a group think that looks down upon other people outside of the group. But I think it's a good thing when people love their nation and they, uh, and they care about their uh, culture in their country and uh, the indigenous culture where they are. Um, and we need, and we need to, um, to understand that throughout society, we also need to understand the importance of continental collaboration and global collaboration. So uh, there's a model that we have in the Nordic secret, which is circles of belonging. And so what we need is that um, we need to expand our circles of belonging. And the, if I can just describe them, the five inner circles are the first circle is me, my ego, myself. Then there's the family within which I grow up. Then there's my peer group. Then there's the family that I established myself, so family two. And then there's the, the local community. And all of these communities are real. Uh, that's where I either know who's in it or at least I know of, more or less of, everybody in it. But beyond that is the nation state. And I don't know everybody in the nation state. But still, through narrative, I have a sense of, 
okay, I'm willing to pay taxes for people, I mean, millions of people to send their children to school are never going to meet them. But it's important to me that their children, you know, go to school as well. It's also important to me that they have health care. And in case uh, somebody attacks my country, that we share a military that can protect us. So we have a sense of shared fate. And that comes from storytelling. And so we're now out in the so-called imagined communities. It doesn't mean they're not real. It just means that they're based on our imagination. We imagine that we belong together. And then beyond the nation state, there is the, uh, the cultural zone, and then there's uh, universal principles, and then there's the, the planet here and now, and then there's the planet in uh, you know, all of eternity, where we're coming from and where we're going. And what we need in a metamodern world and with all the global communication technology, we need to be uh, caring, responsible individuals in all 10 circles of belonging. And that is a building process. And you, I mean, you become aware of one of these circles before you can take responsibility for it. So there are di the different sort of layers of development and commitment, even within those circles. And this is, this is very complex and it, it's not, I mean, very suited for, for a presentation like this. And you can buy the book and read about it in the Nordic Secret. Um, that's but I think, it's, that's that's but, I think but, it's very important, Elena. So it I is. Just, I would just echo what you, what you say, because if you don't understand that really caring about these circles is an embodied process and it involves deep psychological development. And you can't just jump out to the, to, to, to the outer circles in an imaginary leap. You have to go through an embodied development. And that is what is very much lacking today. And, and we see when, uh, when the EU now, for example, is, is crumbling and the, or the UK is even falling apart, that too few people are anchored in an embodied way in the more expansive circles of belonging. And that is exactly what we need today in the world. And that is part of the building process. Right, and, it, right. and it's important, as, as Thomas said, it's important that you, that you go through all the circles. I mean, you can't be weaker in one of them, but if you don't, if you don't have a peer group, I mean, if, if you don't have close friends and, and you don't have like small circles where you, uh, where you know everybody and where you can, can trust people, there's something crucial lacking in your life that makes it really hard for you to commit to a relationship, an intimate partner, and to create a family. And if you don't create a family and have that kind of intimacy as an adult, it's really hard to go out and be a free and uh, independent, uh, self-authoring adult because there, there's something emotional lacking inside you. And if you, if you don't have an understanding for, you know, identifying with something as abstract and immaterial as your country, like your country's history, its poetry and its stories, it, it's really hard to relate to people from other cultures because then, then you cannot mirror what it is they bring into your life. And it becomes, ter I mean, you can become terrified when you realize that you meet somebody who's you know deeply religious and know exactly where they're coming from and they i mean they're very self-confident with their building and culture and there you are and you have no clue where you're coming from yourself um so and and that is why we also need to to think about our school systems and and see them as as cultural institutions and and building institutions and and our schools shouldn't just be for upgrading everybody for the workforce of the future mainly because, I mean, robots are going to do most of the work. Um, but we also, I mean, we need that inner emotional development in order to be able to, um, to carry ourselves. 
through life and to identify with, with still larger groups of people and in order to feel uh, that we are, which we are, a part of nature and, uh, and in order to save the planet on which we live. Right. Thank you for that. Um, what we'll do now is like open the floor for, for all the participants so they can ask questions. Let me just um, change the settings here. Um, I hope I do that right. So let's see how, how that works. Let's, so I think everybody should be able to talk now more or less. Hello. Hello. Hi, everyone. Great, great to see you. Hey, guys. That was wonderful. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. So, um, are there any questions from the audience at this point? Sure. Go ahead. Hi, Thomas and Linnea. Good to see you. Good to see you. I, I wish Good. I could see you, but I see your picture. Oh, that's okay. We'll, we'll connect. So the big question that I have, you, you all are talking about more profound um, relational coalescence, okay, on the different levels and the expanding spheres and totally get it. And of course, I can map it to my stuff too. My question for you, though, which you've also written wonderfully on, you know, I'm a fan of this, is your analysis of postmodernism. And so my question is to challenge you to help somebody like me with topics or tactics. So we have these postmodernists in the United States. So I'm Chuck Pozeski. I'm in Washington State. I'm actually in Reno, Nevada right now with my sons. But the challenge that we're facing is that our, our postmodern community is incredibly relationally destructive. And I would really like to help move things along um, towards this relational coalescence, which you're talking about, but I'm at a bit of a loss how one might start. And so I was curious if you had, from your insights on writing about postmodernism, you know, what do you, what do you think, what do you think we should kind of do? Um, let me just say that first of all, the, the, let's call them um, enthusiastic if not aggressive, uh, <laughs> postmodernists. Um, I, I think, I mean, there are a bunch of uh, 50 plus year olds um, in, in academia, but mostly it's college students. And, um, and I, it, it comes with the age and they're, they're still in the uh, uh, self-governing phase where you need a, a, a very, it's, it's a very black and white worldview. It's a very, us versus them worldview, and they're trying to find their own way in, in society. And, and I think that, um, I mean, it, it definitely is a, a huge challenge, but I think that the, uh, the, the best way to do it is on, on, uh, on an individual basis and, uh, and show them something of value from the, uh, from the modern and the pre-modern world, and perhaps even from the indigenous world. I mean, how many of those young people 
um, have spent a, a night under a starry sky and, and woken up and, and lit a bonfire in order to cook breakfast. I mean, there's, um, the, there's also a whole generation that's just stuck in the cities in front of the screen. And, and I think that we have not, um, I mean, we're, we're the adult generation who brought them up. And, uh, and, and so there's a, a huge, we have a huge responsibility here. And I, th I think that showing them that there are alternatives rather than, you know, attacking them head on. Um, I, I think that uh, also challenging them then on their, on their own worldview and, and, and saying, so when, when did you, when did you last take an outside view on, on your worldview? Um, one thing that I, that I think is, is hugely problematic is that um, I mean, part of building is getting pushbacks, and it's uh, it's having to change your mind from time to time. And and nobody becomes a, a healthy adult without making mistakes, and without making a complete ass out of yourself from time to time. I'm not going to give any personal examples. You're not going to get that. But I've been there, done that, uh, and you grow from that. And um, and I think we've created uh, more in the U.S. probably than here, but we've created a. a a culture where we do not accept mistakes as a, a no-failure culture, and particularly in the in the job market. And I and I think that we should um, we should be better at uh, at showing that part of life is making mistakes and changing your mind and learning new stuff. And uh, and maybe they should read some of the classics. That would that's always good. Read Goethe, Suffering of Young Vader. Okay, so so my my take would be very much uh, the same. Um, I, I might add that I think that this is a classical example of a mix, mismatch bit, between your own personal development and the um, cultural code that you are operating from. So to really be able to hold the postmodern worldview in an embodied way. Uh, then you need to have come quite far on your uh, life journey, just like the uh, postmodern philosophers like Loyotard or Foucault obviously had done. But if you instead adopt the postmodern worldview at an early stage in life, just like Lena say, then, then you adopt it more or less as a religion as a belief that you are socialized into. And at that early adult stage, you are in quite a vulnerable position and you, you, you have a need to build your identity. And it's very easy to look at the world in these black and white and us and them, them terms. So um, I think that there is very little to do uh, directly with those individuals. I, I think it is, uh, society and not the least academia that needs to adopt a developmental psychological view and to realize that you need to go through all these different steps and that before you can start to really appreciate the postmodern critique of, of science and reason, you need to pass through a stage where you are really taught to appreciate the values of of, re of reason and, and modernity and of, um, of science. So to avoid this fallacy of rejecting the previous stage, 
but actually going through the stages one by one. And when you are going through the stages one by one and also realizing that you are on this developmental journey, then you would hold these perspectives a, a little, with a little bit more uh, uh, humility. I mean, the, the, the question really is, are you tolerant or are you socialized into holding tolerant norms? Yeah. Uh, and, and Thomas and I have actually discussed that with regards to the Nordic countries and the World Value Survey, because, I mean, the reason why the, the Nordic countries are up in that right-hand side uh, top corner is it because people are actually tolerant or are they just reproducing uh, tolerant expectations or expectations of, of tolerant ways of expressing oneself? And, uh, and there's... a uh, there's a feminist wave that f from time to time I would, I would say is not that tolerant, um, but it, it claims to have all this tolerance. So, uh, so I, I think you have to be able to sort of deconstruct that as well, and we can use postmodernism for that. And that was like taking the whole thing to another meta level. So that is, <laughs> that is um, uh, using a postmodernist uh, deconstruction on postmodernism itself is, is usually a healthy thing. And I would point again at what Lena said earlier here about the, the fact that uh, the climate that is now created at some of these uh, campuses with, with a lot of these postmodern thinking uh, is a climate where you are actually shielding uh, these young adults from uh, views, expressions, and anything that could offend them. And that is, of, of course, not... Uh, uh, supporting a, a, de a developmental journey because you need to have your your views and also your emotions challenged to a reasonable extent in order for you to develop and, and grow and you need to create a safe a, a safe environment to do that challenging so um, yeah and one one thing that I I mean it, it's actually a, a conservative norm which is showing uh, uh, considering uh, considerance for for others and and considering other people's emotions and um, and being polite and and part of modernity uh, has been to reject everything pre-modern and and these moral norms of politeness and consideration so uh, there is also a, a freedom of speech aggressiveness in the modern environment where it's like I have the right to say anything which of course is also what the postmodern woke movement is is protesting against because then you actually I mean if, if you do that from a, a position of power and privilege which is actually out there but if you just with power and privilege claim the right to say anything um, then you are being part of a, an oppressive system. And that is, a, that is a fair and just critique. So this is very complex because in the postmodern world, whether you are, uh, I mean, whatever ethnic background you have, gender, um, economic status and so forth, um, there is a, there's a, an insistence that there cannot be any hierarchies. And, and so we have a number of value systems that are interacting at the moment. And we, um, 
if that is presented by an age group that is uh, inclined to see the uh, the world in black and white, that makes it very complicated, particularly when the actual, actually tolerant people, the 40, 50, 60 plus people, uh, cannot grasp it intellectually and don't share the vocabulary. I mean, that, that that's, I, I think, is the conflict that we're in. Um, so everybody has a little bit of right and everybody is, uh, you know, uh, struggling with the complexity of, of the current world. And I think meta-modernity can help us there, or at least um, create a shared vocabulary. Right, there's a text question here. I will read it. What does the wider discussion look on the 21st century skills? Look this year during Q um, COVID. What has changed? Are we making progress? Did you get that or should I read it again? Dragon. What does the wider discussion look on the 21st century skills this year during COVID? What has changed? Are we making progress? I don't think very much has fundamentally changed. The only thing that the, the really big, I mean, it's a terrible situation and it, it's horrible that we're in this sort of insecure uh, situation and, and people risk health and our economies are suffering and people live in insecurity and suffer from anxiety and stress and that's bad. Um, existentially and philosophically it has not really changed anything yet uh, as I see it and that's, uh, that's a problem. I think that uh, five years from now uh, there's a huge risk that we will look back and, and say how come nothing changed? Um, but this is an opportunity for actual change. And, and what I, I find really, really positive is that suddenly our governments uh, could stand up to the market. And suddenly it was more important that we had functioning societies and that people were not kicked out of their homes than we had, you know, uh, low national debt and, um, and, and, you know, kept the, the wheels going. So, uh, so the one thing that I really think has come out of this is that governments actually stepped up uh, more, some countries more so than others, but that that politically um, there was a will to uh, to act against the market. I think what's go going on right now is um, is a bit con uh, confusing because uh, at the same time as uh, uh, again this rapid technological change. Uh, you see the political confusion in the, in the UK and in the US, and on top of that, we have the COVID crisis. That, that makes a lot of people act out of a mindset of fear. So in, in developmental terms, that, that is actually forcing you to act in a way, in a, in a state of regression from a lower consciousness. So we see this drop in, in, in consciousness in, in many of, of our countries right now. But then, um, out, of, out of fear. But then at the same time, we have some sort of, of awakening and the, and the interest for uh, sort of a next paradigm and, or an interest in what might come after uh, a postmodern uh, worldview. What would a post-postmodern worldview look like the interests uh, for those questions and I would even say an, an awakening is happening also at the same time even if it's very very small in percentage of of the population it's actually quite rapid 
quite, quite rapid. And the, the people that I meet that are interested in these uh, uh, issues uh, have uh, doubled, tripled, quadrupled during the last uh, year. And, and that I find very promising. So at the same time as there is a drop in the consciousness levels that we are acting from out of fear and turbulence, at the same time there is an awakening. And, and which one of these sides that will sort of win this, um, this battle or game, I don't know. But I, I, I think that we are coming to this sort of um, proverbial bifurcation point where our civilization cannot just go on with incremental changes, that, that we hit a wall where we, are either, where we either have to break through and step up or we will face a breakdown. So it's a breakthrough or breakdown moment that we are coming up to within perhaps 10 years. And I, I think that's where metamodernity can be of great help because one of the main points in metamodernity is that nobody's going to come and take your culture away from you. And I think a lot of people have heard over the past 30 years, even though that is not what politicians and decision makers have been saying, but what a lot of people have been hearing is that we're coming to take away your religion. We're coming to take away your national sense of identity. We're going to come and take away your uh, favorite foods and your traditions and all these uh, wonderful things that allow you to make sense of the world. And now we're just going to be one big uh, global community in one big global economy. And, um, and, and you better just adjust to that. Uh, and of course, if you, if you say that to people or if, if, that is what people think they're hearing, um, then people are going to suffer from anxiety and they're going to be angry and they're going to try and defend what it is that they know and, and care about. And so it, it's really important for, for any kind of leadership, decision makers, uh, policy makers to be very clear that we're going we're gonna to preserve as much as possible of, of the meaning-making cultural and cultural infrastructures that we already have a no, and then on top of that, or around that, and underneath that, in order to carry that, we're going to build more and new uh, structures, new institutions, new ways of doing things, but we're going to do our utmost so that everybody um, can keep many of the things that they really care about. There are things that we can't uh, continue doing, which is um, use as, as much uh, oil and gas as we're doing right now. We have to find other energy sources and we have to, um, I mean, we are already online and we're on Zoom right now and uh, we don't even know where, where the algorithms are hidden and, and what kind of satellites all of this is going through and what kind of power structures and who owns this. Um, so we need a new institutions there as well. Um, but we, uh, the, I, a, a really important message is that people can keep what they, I mean, the, the meaning making that they have and then add to that. But in order to do that, we need new ed educational institutions. We need new public uh, service, radio, podcasts, um, television, internet, uh, social media, where um, 
and, and also job opportunities so that people can actually provide for a family and, and, and have a meaningful life and a productive life and, a, and a, an empowered life where people feel that they're in charge of, of their own destiny. Um, and that, uh, that, I mean, that is hard to find for a lot of people right now. That, that is part of, of COVID. That's a lot of what is happening due to the COVID. Um, right. And, and so it, it's really important that we address that. I would just add one thing to that, uh, Leanne, and that is for, for that strategy to, to work, we, we need to have societies that also are supportive of our inner personal development because we can keep our religions and we can keep our, our, nation, our nations as, as long as we do that from a, a more developed perspective and where we avoid entering into an us and them uh, relationship. So uh, we need to transcend that. And, and that is, we shouldn't hide that. That is a, a big problem today with many parts of the way that, for example, some religions are actually lived, even if that is not the message of, the, of those religions, that they make people uh, think in us and them terms. And that is something that we need to, to mm -hmm. overcome, not by rejecting those religions, but being able to hold those religions and those traditions from, from a higher developmental space. Right. I think Mr. Saunders has a question. Uh, yes, hello. Uh, Tim here from Liverpool. Um, I've been um, hoping to make contact with both of you for probably a year or two now, but I've only just summoned up the courage to connect with you properly. Um, and um, I, I just happen to have a hard copy of the tone. So I'm, I'm glad we've gone back onto video mode for me to seek some approval. Good. Um, but, but as yet, I've not it. <laughs> Sorry? Body language. Yeah, I've got body language. Yeah, I've not read it cover to cover, but now, now I feel there's more of a connection. That's a motivation for me to do so. And one of the things that resonated with me was what you were saying about the circle of belonging and the importance of that. Because for me personally, I've spent the last few years kind of rerouting myself in a particular place, having been a nomad for the whole of my adult life. And that, that's, that's very significant for me at the moment. So I'm kind of feel like I'm working more locally in Liverpool um, for the first time in my life. But the question is really uh, to do with what you were saying about the, um, the kind of top down and the grassroots bottom up connecting together and the way that we can somehow act as catalysts in that, in that process. So I just wanted to ask you both personally uh, just for an example of what, what you're actually doing to make that connection and make that happen wherever you are, whether it's Den Denmark, Sweden, or even London in uh, Thomas's case. Thomas, do you want to go first? I know what I want to say. <laughs> no, no, you, you, you go ahead. I'm not sure that I understood uh, the question 100%. So if you go ahead, Lena, I, I, I might... Uh... So I mean, it, it's about second. connecting the the top and the bottom uh, in this in this education building personal development uh, agenda. Um, and I mean, first of all, we have, we've written the book and uh, and started this conversation, and um, from that, 
uh, grew in, uh, in Copenhagen, a, a group of people who contacted me and wanted to start something. And we started a think tank called Nordic Bildung. And uh, through, uh, uh, among other things, Thomas Network in, uh, in Berlin, uh, that brought us uh, together with some people in Germany. I uh, met with some people in the Netherlands who started the Bildung Academy in Amsterdam. And we have now created uh, the European Bildung Network. And, uh, and you can just look it up, uh, europeanbildung.net. And, um, and so we, uh, we celebrate a European Bildung Day on, on Europe Day, uh, May 9th. We've done that in 2019 and 2020. We were a bit surprised by the COVID and had to move it online like everything else. Um, so, uh, so we are, what we're doing right now is trying to connect with the education and building infrastructure that is already present on the European continent and the UK. We still consider you a part of Europe. So, um, so, so that is, that is one thing that we're that we're doing here. Um, the Nordic Secret uh, got a lot of exposure in, in the New York Times by David Brooks in February. So I've been contacted, or we've been contacted by um, by some Americans that I'm that I'm also talking with now and trying to to make a network there. So um, on on both continents, people are really uh, in different strata of society and with extremely. Uh, different backgrounds, um, curious about this building thing and what you can do with it. And, um, and, and it's a beginning. And whether we'll uh, be, you know, a, a big hit and uh, the talk of the town on two continents two years from now or 10 years from now, or everything will just fizzle out in six months, I don't know. Um, but this is, uh, I mean, there are we already have a number of institutions that, that were created in order to deal with Bildung. Uh, all our colleges and universities since the uh, Wilhelm von Humboldt have had this as part of their uh, raison d'etre. And even in the US, and, and unfortunately we've, we've forgotten about this. So we have the infrastructure and we have the philosophical tradition and we have the knowledge and a meeting like this, and hopefully uh, people are watching this on Facebook or will watch it later on YouTube. Um, we're starting a conversation. I see this whole sort of ecosystem of, of people who are interested in building and who are creating their own things and connecting. So, so I think it, it, is, it is beginning. Um, and and I, I mean, I, I spend my full work time, uh, daytime, um, some of the evenings as well, like now, uh, on this on this agenda, and it's it's a very very uh, rewarding and meaningful, and I haven't had this month much fun in years because I meet so many interesting people and I really enjoy it, and I think that's the uh, that's the other side to this that whenever you start, you know, working with building and in building and dealing with building, um, you meet uh, people who are uh, really involved in not just the education and the personal development, but also in political empowerment, because that is really what building was about in the first place. Um, and so at the uh, European Building Network, we had a, a, a European coffee house yesterday, um, and you can join it if you're a member. Um, and, uh, and we just had a conversation about this, and that was actually where we we're talking about this thing with the pastors. Why, why was it them who started all these things and, and realized it's probably because they were 
the, the resourceful people who were facing the people with the least resources. So, um, so it, it, it's deeply meaningful once you, once you engage with this and, um, and, and we, uh, we, we, we have started. So I, I would add another dimension to that as well. I sometimes say that uh, I don't see what happened in the Nordic countries and, and the building process there as, as a blueprint for what, what we need to do today necessarily. Uh, I, but I do see it as a, a very important case study showing that these ideas about connecting our interpersonal development to societal change is not just some uh, fringe hippie idea. It, it, it's actually a concept that has been tried full scale in three or four countries a uh, hundred years ago, and it worked, and it still has effects to this day. But, whereas today, uh, we, we might use uh, the technology that is available to us today that was not available a hundred years ago. So I have my foundation in Stockholm has one initiative together with the uh, Norsken Foundation in Stockholm, where we are uh, trying to create a non-profit open source digital platform for building, if you want, or personal development. And that is called 29K. And that is uh, alive and operating uh, since six months. And, uh, and it's free of charge. You can go on App Store and download the 29K app and, and try it. And you will see that we are trying that to do in a digital form and very much the same things that were done at the Falk High School, not at least recreating the trusting environment for deep uh, conversations around meaningful personal subjects. But then Tim, well, I, I don't think that I fully understood your question because you wanted us also to reflect on our personal journeys. Was that correct? Well, not, not, I think you both answered it pretty well, but I suppose what I, one of the things I was getting at was the extent to which you somehow need to mobilize the kind of educated class who are not necessarily the elite and somehow make a bridge between the grassroots movements and, and even what you might call the most impoverished people in the West, sometimes called the precariat, how, how do you get those people involved in a way that connects also with business and with, which connects with the politicians as, you know, at the same time? So I think that was, that was the bigger question behind what I was asking, as well as, as, well as asking for some personal insights in what, what one individual can do practically. Well, one thing that... I might add when I understand your question a bit deeper is that to my surprise, uh, the business community in, in Scandinavia and also in other places in, in the world are starting to uh, respond to these challenges uh, more rapidly and more forcefully than uh, uh, the public sector and, and educators. So in, in, in many, companies, not only high-tech companies, but certainly in high-tech companies, that there is a realization that uh, the environment that these companies are operating in is so rapidly moving that in order for employees to actually be functioning in such an environment, they need to have building, they need to have, have this personal development, and they need to operate at least from a self-authoring 
uh, perspective because you can't any longer guide these rapidly moving organizations through a system of rules and regulations. You need to have people who can actively take responsibility for day-to-day -day decisions, not only for their taking into account their own department, but taking into account the totality of, of the company. And that is a very complex space to, to operate from. And these companies notice that a lot of employees, given that freedom and responsibility, actually just ends up burning themselves out. They cannot handle this. So it, it becomes um, a very hot issue for, uh, for companies to start looking at personal development for, for everyone. And that, that's encouraging to see. Yeah, I see. I, I do not have uh, deep contacts into the corporate business world. And I, what, I, what I would like to know is whether these uh, business leaders are actually interested in building or they're just uh, interested in a smoothly running uh, uh, company. Because building is, is radical and building is in political empowerment and is also the uh, moral backbone to uh, to speak up to your boss and yeah. and and defend what is morally right and yeah. and uh, put ethical demands on the leadership so um mm -hmm. i i think and, and what i'm sensing from the people in the educational sector is that they are when we're working with them they're realizing that they have forgotten the building part and the uh, political empowerment and the uh, the radical of building in, in the education that they have provided for the past one or two generations, three generations maybe. And, uh, and we have become so complacent in the West since the fall of the Berlin Wall that we just think that we have the right answers to everything. And we haven't really challenged our own thinking. Um, and we need to do that. And, and, we, uh, and we need to, to take our own uh, universal principles seriously and, um, and, and upgrade our, our implementation and understanding of them. And that is radical. And part of that is also, I mean, it, it, it's putting planet uh, above profit. And, uh, and how many companies are ready to do that? So, um, and, and that is why I, I prefer to talk about building instead of personal development, because personal development can be very harmless because it can be personal development into a framework that su suits somebody else's agenda. Building is your personal expansion of not just your emotional you know, development, but also your actual knowledge about the world and getting the knowledge, the horizontal knowledge that allows you to do critical thinking and to question what is being said from authorities. Oh, so it's certainly much more difficult to uh, to run a, a company of a thousand self-authoring individuals than running a company with uh, with a thousand uh, socialized uh, operating from a socialized uh, uh, mind. But um, the corporations might find that uh, if it's not possible, then you need to uh, uh, give that empowerment to your employees, even if that is. But you also, I mean, you have to have a leadership in the company that not just gives it to the employees because they realize they can't do without it. They have to, they have to appreciate it. Mm. And, yeah. that, and that is why you need leadership that is uh, self-transforming mm. and that, that appreciates to be challenged by other people. And they're like, Hey, I didn't, I, I never saw it from that angle. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, and, and thank you for proving that what marketing has been doing for the past 12 years and for which we spent, you know, millions of dollars or whatever, uh, turns out to be wrong because somebody just pointed out what we completely misunderstood something. Yeah, um, and I was just referring to this fifth grandparent uh, level. Yeah. And I totally agree with Lena that, that we, we need to see business leaders in their 40s developing that uh, capacities in order to be able to hold and develop and appreciate organizations full of people that are. are and they're, uh, and they're probably only going to do that if, if they make some major mistakes. Well, there's Andrew Sweeney, my co-collaborator from Parallax, who raised his hand for a question. Andrew? We don't, we don't hear you. All right, am I unmuted now? Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah no, no, you can. My apologies. Yeah, that was, that was wonderful. And I find myself really um, excited by what you're talking about, especially the concept of Bildung. Uh, as I think, I, I think you're correct in saying that it's much more important than self-development, that there might be a problem with the term self-development. And there might also be a problem with the term, uh, you know, self-authoring. And what I'm noticing actually is, is what, what gives me a lot of joy recently is 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 um, is collaborative ventures uh, with with other people, maybe one or two people. Like it's a dialogical author, authoring uh, offer, uh, offering, excuse me, rather than a self authoring. You know, I used to be a musician and I was almost a solo artist. And I was on the stage by myself, and 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 that that's less appealing to me now. And I also see other people doing that, like. Um, somebody I do a podcast with, John Vervecki, he, he, when he writes a book, he writes a book with three people. You guys wrote your book together. Uh, people are sort of writing books together or, or creating and that. So, so I want there to be more stages before the grandfather stage, right? Uh, between self-authoring and, and what you call the grandfather stage, because that, that seems like a, an elder stage. Um, does, am I making any sense? Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. And I, I mean, the, we had great fun uh, working on the, on the Nordic Secret. And um, and and as I said, I mean, I I spent two years with uh, you know my nose down in uh, tons of books and then typing, typing, typing. Uh, but it wouldn't have I wouldn't have been able to do it if I hadn't ping pong with uh, with Thomas during those two years. And uh, it was a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed it. And, uh, and, and a lot of good stuff came out of that that simply would not have been in the book if we had been two people working on it. Um, and, and, I, and I totally agree. And, and uh, one of my big joys right now is that I, I found all these, you know, playmates uh, across the continent. And, and we're doing this together and, and people are, are reaching out. And of course, it, it's more fun if, if you share at a more or less uh, equal level of of input and discussion and uh, critique and and challenging each other. So so it's also a question of how do you how do you how do you bring in more people? Um, and th and that's where we need education and building as uh, and, and and places to to meet and do this. And it's wonderful that we can do this on online and and, and invite more people to you know uh, maybe check this out and try to figure out where where they would like to join. And I think that what we need to do is to make sure that uh, the self-authoring stage does not remain a grandparent state, but that much more people earlier on in life reaches that level 
just like in the pre-modern society, the self-authoring stage was really a grandparent, a very rare state to, to achieve during your lifetime. And then after the enlightenment and with modernity, it almost had become a prerequisite for you to function properly in a modern state, to be at this developmental level. In the same way, I think that we are now moving into a new society where most of the leading people in society, whether they are in their late 30s or 40s or 50s, actually need to be operating from these higher levels of consciousness. I think one of the, I mean, we, we, can, we can change our way of describing what is, what is the good work situation. And I mean, we really have in the Western world uh, idolized the, uh, the successful individual. And I mean, the, there's actually an interesting difference between the uh, European cartoon heroes uh, or comic strip heroes and the uh, American ones, because the American superheroes are uh, like John Wayne. They come from outside of society, then they enter society, fix the problem and leave again. And they don't have girlfriends, they don't have families, they don't have children, don't even have friends. Um, Superman, Batman, uh, Spider-Man, uh, any, you know, man you can think of in a, you know, jumpsuit. Um, whereas the European cartoon heroes are like Tintin and Lucky Luke, and they're all embedded in a, in a community, in a society. And even though uh, they don't seem to have girlfriends, um, they, they do have friends, or at least a dog. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, there, there is, I mean, there, there's, uh, even though we have this individualistic culture in the modern era, uh, we have focused on it differently in the U.S. and, and Europe, but we still have this, it's actually a romantic idea, this, this concept of the, of the genius who has this, you know, incoming, you know, stuff from the universe and then they spread it out into the world and, and everybody gets enlightened. But even Goethe and Schiller were best buddies and uh, when, when Schiller died and Goethe was left alone, he was like heartbroken because they had this uh, bromance and, and you know, ping-ponged and f fed their ideas off each other. And, and they couldn't have become what they became without that friendship. Uh, they, they both had the, the initial uh, talent and, and drive and creativity, but it was in the process between them that it happened. So I, I think we've We've just lost the language for this. And one of the things that I have enjoyed the most uh, being an independent publisher is to be an editor for some of the people who brought in scripts and to you know, read a script, give feedback and see not just that the script is changing, but that the person is growing with the feedback and with you know, working with their own material and coming back with a new, a new way of looking at things. So, uh, so I, I think that we could, we could do much more to express what kind of feeling that is like and to talk about, so when was, when was the last time you made other people grow? Um, and, and what did that feel like? Because we all do that from time to time and hopefully we get better at it with age. Let me chime in something, Winnea. You know, I totally agree with you. I think the important thing to remember is that authorities write history and authorities tend to be egocentric and projecting. And so therefore the answer to, um, the answer to why it always is the genius is because 
the the historical genius is the one writing this. And so it's it's you know I, as you know I write about empathy, and basically it's a huge blind spot. And so you're talking about a synergistic process that comes from a higher order of development, which I totally agree with once again. Um, the, the key thing is you have to have people though who have the ability to do that. And those are, they typically don't come out of the academy and you know, they're not structured in the way that they project thoughts to say that. So it's really a super challenge. Otherwise, like, you know, you're not a professor, but I would be, I would love it if you were on my faculty, you know, because then we would sit down and we would talk, right? So it's, it's, a real, it's a really interesting thing because there's this, this collapse of perspective that is implicit in how the organs of society who are supposed to be telling us how to do this evolution mm. simply can't respond anymore. I mean, they, they're, they're, they're trapped in kind of their own bubble. So. But, but you, you, we should remember that, of course, the, 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 the modern human, the modern person, did not come out of the pre-modern institutions. The pre-modern institutions kept people in the pre-modern mind. And in the same way, the, the modern institutions, like academia, or, or politics uh, right now, or, or even to some extent business, keeps people in a modern mind. So we, we would expect that the people who, who, who would start to show up as, a, as the post-postmodern people or metamodern people would be people that comes from outside the, the structures of modernity. Well, or people like myself who are outcasts. I mean, you know, I traveled to Sweden just to visit for four days with, with, your, with your young, I don't know what, young, young collaborator, apprentice, you know, Daniel Gertz, because yeah. it's super hard. You know, one of the ways that I like to pose this problem is the virus has given us all sorts of great terms for the ability to spread these information mimetically and are not, and are, are not, right? Our viral coefficient is still very, very much below one. It's, it's, it's a super challenging thing to think about how to spread some of these more ideas. I mean, there's this weird social professor like me who will pop out to Sweden yeah. and I'm going to But, but, but I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic. I, I'd certainly see in, in Northern Europe, these things do not yet go viral in, uh, in, in the general population. Uh, but I think that we have left the stage where it's just uh, a few uh, uh, intellectual nerds and outcasts, in marketing terms, the innovators that, that are meeting up and, and uh, meeting each other. I'm now seeing a space of early adopters wake, waking up. And that is more or less normal people who just feel a resonance to these perspectives and become very... Uh, uh, curious to learn more about these things, and they are not and a I majority. Agree. They are not a majority. They they are just a couple of percent people. But if you look at uh, Europe, if we have two or three percent um, waking up, that could be ten million people. And and I agree with you. I've had more interest in the past year on my blog and with the stuff I write about than I ever had before. I mean, yeah. it was just me and you know some of you guys and connecting and all of a sudden people are finding me so thomas i want you to know that i am modest i mean it's it's rough being in the united states right now but i am modestly optimistic 
But, but then at, again, at the same time, you have a movement, especially in the US and in the UK, of, of the majority of the population actually moving in another direction. I, I, I want to shut up, so, but it's a longer <laughs> conversation, okay? <laughs> yeah, I, and I understand your point. I really do. Oh. Uh, we're dealing with it. <laughs> David Green. De uh, is David Green gone now? He had a question, but now I'm too late, I think. Anyhow. I can ask a question anyhow. What steps would you like to see others like us take in the world? Are, you, are there specific groups doing good work to spread these actions? Yeah, I mean, I, I, just, I just mentioned our, our European uh, Builder Network. Uh, we are trying here in Copenhagen to make a, a popular movement uh, where we combine um, I mean, where we, where we make a different kind of, you know, like uh, town hall meetings and uh, debates and uh, discussions. And uh, for the past couple of weeks, every other Sunday, I have um, Sunday morning from 1030 to 12 had these uh, philosophical Sundays where we combine, we have a, a theme uh, each time. And uh, so we combine a, a short lecture by a scientist with um, some reading from a text or several texts from our shared cultural heritage and some uh, some songs, some music. And usually we would have communal singing. We cannot do that with the COVID, but we've had an actor then sing some of the songs. Uh, so, so we brought this together and, and I've, I've been hosting this. And uh, the first one was about uh, the human humans and trees, our relationship to the trees. So we read the, uh, the part and the, um, in Genesis about the tree of knowledge. And then we read from the Norse mythology about the Ask Yggdrasil, the, uh, the, the tree of life from the Viking mythology. And then we had two children's songs about uh, the forest. And then there was a guy telling us about trees and how they can, you know, pull water from under the ground and, you know, hundreds of meters into the air uh, or I mean, not into the air, but into the leaves on the top of the tree. And it was, uh, I mean, people are really excited about this because it's, it's a great way of, of getting new knowledge and connecting emotionally with our cultural heritage and, and looking at, um, at the same topic from, from different angles. And so we're experimenting with ways of, of having um, events and discussions and adding an aesthetic uh, dimension to it. We've also had some town hall uh, discussions with uh, three or four panelists and group discussions and we've uh, I've made a, a satirical songbook with um, satirical communal songs and there we used to, to serve a snack that was uh, thematically uh, connected to the content so we had one about Trump's America and we served peanut butter sandwiches and a lot of people here in Copenhagen had never had peanut butter before so I mean we, we try to play with this and and give it different different forms and um, and and the challenge has been uh, before COVID and now even more so but before COVID we could not explain what it was we wanted to do and we could not tell people what this what this think tank Nordic Bildung is about or was supposed to be about but now we have the book about metamodernity and we have the book about Bildung and we have uh, made a number of events and gradually people are beginning to I mean, 
anybody who's been to one of our events are like, oh, that was that was great, and there's like a lot of energy coming out of it. But then when they try to tell their friends what they've experienced, it's like, yeah, and then we were singing this song. Now, how did it go? And what was it? And then, uh, and then there was somebody talking about this, and then we had peanut butter sandwiches, and it just sounds like a mess when you when you describe it to people. But when you have curated the program carefully, it actually works, and it becomes this emotional connection to cultural heritage with a satirical twist and an ironical distance plus some science. Um, so we, we, we're starting to make what I would call meta-modern events. Mm. Um, and I hope that, that, we can, that we can sort of package the, the program so I don't have to be the host every time, but more people can take over. Yeah, and, and my angle would be that, yes, in, in real life events, that, that is what is shifting people. And of, of course, uh, my foundation takes its start in our island, the Oak Island, Ekvaret, where we have these retreats and we try to do this in, in real life and in an embodied way. But it's difficult to, to just um, uh, recommend all, all, all of you and, and, the, and the listeners in the future to, to come and join us at the at the Oak Island outside Stockholm or in Copenhagen. So I, I would uh, suggest three uh, other ways to uh, engage. And again, I would say down, download uh, 29K and have a look at that and spread the world around 29K. Uh, have a look at our uh, 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 media platform Emerge with the URL whatisemerging.com where you can find a bit of inspiration about what people are active in this field and what initiatives are, are, are happening. And then I would also uh, recommend an initiative that I'm involved with on the YouTube, the, the Rebel Wisdom YouTube channel, that, that is also bringing perspectives into this space. Right. So um, we would have time for one more press pressing question, if there is some. So, um, everybody's happy? Everybody's happy. Okay. Good. Perfect. So, Lena, Thomas, thank you thank very you, much thank thank you. For, for attending uh, to this lecture and doing this lecture. That was great. I had to wave it around Everybody wave a book. Yes. There we go. Yay. <laughs> awesome. Uh, these are awesome. These two books that Lena has, has condensed. I love you too, Thomas. But, but these two are far easier to hand to somebody than either of those big ones. And, and you know, I've been reading and working and thinking through this. But I just really want to tell everybody, this, this little book and the meta-modern book, the, the meta-modern books, are fantastic to read and give to friends. They're wonderful. Buy plenty, buy plenty. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Yes, and thank you all for, for attending and taking the time and indulge us with your attention, basically. So I hope you will come next time. We have Daniel Gertz and Sie Freinacht coming up and we have Raoul Eschelmann, the, the creator of performatism coming up. There's another post-postmodern theory standing well firm next to integral and metamodernism and all of that so uh, you can find all that on the page uh, parallax slash uh, 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 underscore 
magazine.de where you find where you found this um, event so i hope you have a great night and you enjoyed this a little bit and so thank you for coming thank, thank you, you. Bye. bye